Hello everyone, welcome back to a new episode, to episode number 36 on Sapiens Playground. Today I am very delighted to have as my guest, dietetic student and biochemistry enthusiast, Nicole Fleet, or you can find her on Instagram at bio.chem.nikki. And what's a very interesting conversation, we had an awesome exchange on a whole bunch of diff difficult and various different issues which were complex in nature, including the exploration of possible explanations for autoimmunity, which Nikki became so interested in primarily uh, because of her own health journey, which we also discussed in the beginning of the podcast, um, which is to say that she was struggling with several conditions that she also elucidated in this episode while providing amazing insight into the things that she did that helped her actually to resolve the issues dietary intervention in particular, which, were, well, she used a strict carnivore diet, and we, we also um, tried to find explanations for why this might have been so helpful in her, in her case. And in addition, we continued speaking about the potential future of dietetics and medicine and how it would be really nice if these different branches would start working together for the patient also. And in the end, we had a nice discussion about con controversies in the realm of sports nutrition and how low carb might be useful as a tool and whether it actually provides benefit. Um, so that's been a very, a very insightful um, discussion. And essentially, in the end, we closed with a ramble about the absolutely jaw-droppingly incomprehensible yet extremely beautiful complexity of the human body and how how much humility there is actually to take on before trying to make certain bold claims about the nature of the human body. It's way more complex, complex than we think. And I think our fascination for the human body became pretty be, became pretty evident at the end of the episode. So enjoy the episode and please share it around if you found it interesting and valuable. Here is my conversation with Nikki. Perfect. Yeah, um, I hope the internet connection is going to be stable because the weather today is a little bit suboptimal, let's say. We'll see how we go. My, my internet, I hope, will last me as well because it's uh, I get terrible internet around here. But really, as long as uh, so we should be okay, though. Are you in Sydney? <laughs> no, I'm in Newcastle, which is about two hours uh, north of Sydney. Oh, I see. How do you like yes. Australia? I've never been there, but I would love to visit Australia one one day. I've uh, I, I've heard that um, they have been a little bit weird with the whole restriction thing, and uh, yes, it's been a bit, you know, quite quite drastic measures over there. How did you perceive I, the situation? I think we sort of, yeah, yeah. I think we possibly waited too long. We did the Australian thing where we. We don't worry until the last minute, and then I think we left it too long, and and then we had to do some crazy drastic things. So, um, but we seem to be in a good place now, thankfully. Mm. Uh, we've moved through it. <laughs> but, yeah, it was it was frustrating for for the time being, but yeah, we seem to we seem to be on the other side now, thankfully. On the other side, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully things <laughs> are going to go in the better direction now, because uh, well, let's hope so. Yeah, that's that's right. So. I can say Nikki, is that right? Yes. Okay, yes. okay, perfect. So, Nikki, thanks a lot for coming on. It's a great pleasure to have you on. 
Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> you know, I've heard you the first time. I've heard you uh, about you the first time on the um, this. Who, who? What's the name of this guy? He also had me on the first time. His was. I think his Instagram name is My Health Motivator, something like that. I think it was your first podcast too. You'd be like super excited, like, oh, geez, I'm being on podcast. Yeah, yeah, yes, I, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. So you've been on his as well. Yeah, he, he invited me right after uh, he had you on, I believe. Um, so how, how has your podcast experience been like since then? Because I believe you have been on a couple, on couple other shows um, from that time on. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I have been. Now, I'm just trying to think when that was. I think that might have been around Christmas time. But that is that right? Could be. It was like more than a year ago. Yeah. Oh, no, hang on. That was that was that was ages ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, fellow fellow Aussie. Yes. Sorry, exactly. I was I was thinking exactly. of another one. Yes. Fellow Aussie. And uh, he yes, he was my very first podcast and I was mm. extremely nervous. Um, yeah, no. So I've been on a few since then and it's been uh Really cool, um, you know, connecting with people that are on the same page about um, how they feel about nutrition, especially, mm -hmm. um, but 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 the world too. So yeah, it's it's been really fun connecting with people all over the world, and um, <clears throat> this is what I love about uh, about what what is available to us these days is that we get to connect with people just all over the world, and um, knowing as well that I, I feel like this community, there's a very small community of uh, mm -hmm. people that are like minds in this space. Uh, in Australia, but it's not huge. I feel like there's a right. lot of people from the US, um, but it is amazing connecting with people that are all over the world and, and, and making friends, so it's great. Absolutely, and I, I feel like the, the community um, that celebrate animal foods, let's say, is starting to grow and expand more rapidly in the US, as you said. Um, it's, it's, not as, um, it's not as popular here in Europe, I suppose. Especially like, you know, mm -hmm. it feels like Europe, <laughs> you know, it, Europe is like always a couple years behind the US. So now the vegan cult oh, is pretty yeah. prevalent here. It's like everyone likes to be vegan. That's pretty funny because, you know, that's, it's, 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 it's kind of still a thing in the US. But they're, you know, as we said, the, the animal-based communities, trying, it, it, it grows larger and larger. More people try, seem to understand that they are valuable and that veganism is something maybe to to look at with a critical eye. So let's talk about how you got there. Because you had, if I, if I remember correctly, you had an autoimmune history, something like that? Correct me if I'm wrong. Absolutely, yeah. No, that's, that's correct. I, I, um, I've always suffered with uh, autoimmune conditions and uh, I, I used to find it uh, incredibly frustrating actually and uh, I would hate to put poor health on anybody, but I, I used to get really frustrated because out of everybody in my family, Everybody seemed to have uh, amazing health, and for some reason, I just kept getting hit with all different weird and wonderful things. And mm -hmm. um, now, when I look back, it, it makes quite a lot of sense, I guess. Like a lot of things um, sort of um, stacking on top of each other. But you know, being a cesarean birth, and then um, I was uh, I kept getting um, sick with tonsillitis as mm -hmm. a four-year-old, and I had about a, a two years where I just kept getting it. And, um, and so I was on a lot of antibiotics for, a, right. for quite a while. Um, and then um, I started to develop uh, hay fever and asthma around the age of sort of five, five or six. And I've had that ever uh, as far back as, uh, as I can remember. And, um, you know, it was, it was stressful for a little kid because, you know, you'd want to go over and hang out with friends at their houses and stay over and do sleepovers. 
workers and and that was always quite stressful for me because they'd either have an animal or um or they'd just have a bit of dust and and I'd end up spending all night you know trying to breathe mm-hmm, <laughs> um mm-hmm. and then you know as I got older and into my teens I I started to sort of um develop skin problems with my autoimmunity as well and so then I was on this mission to to try and combat that and um and then also just weight fluctuations and as a teenager that's something you try to uh try to look into and and so the further deep down I got into the nutrition space the more I developed a passion for it but the more I was trying to um you know heal my own my own body and I think that in in fact probably made my situation worse because then of course I started to uh, study nutrition um, when I came out of high school, and of course mm. that was a very plant-based, um, oh, yeah. you know, teaching. <laughs> so um, when I look back on it now, I think, okay, a lot of the issues I think unfortunately were out of my control, but I think also were possibly made worse by my my own choices and in trying to uh, find the answer myself. And um, and so I guess. Uh, my my issues kind of continued to develop and and worsen um, as I went into my 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 late twenties and then um, kind of hit a bit of a um, a head when I had my first little one. Um, mm-hmm. She's now five, and um, so when I when I had her, um, I guess you know that 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 takes a toll on on your body. Oh yeah, <laughs> and I felt coming back out of it quite difficult. Um, I couldn't shed the weight, and 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 my gut. Uh, issues sort of just kept worsening my hay fever and my asthma until one day I kind of um, just thought I, I need to I need to sort this out I, I really want to um, I, I want to hold on to my fertility because I, I wanted to have a second and sure. and so that was on my mind and and so I went off to a, um, a a natural health doctor and we looked at some of my blood work and and I could see that there was a lot of inflammation going on. And so that started off okay. my journey into um, looking at it from more of an inflammatory uh, place, what's going on there. Okay. Well, a couple things here. Um, first, how well you were you able to distinguish between simply an allergic reaction? Because most many of your, th- of your symptoms could be just um, put off as allergies, like asthma and like you're itching or whatever. And did you have um, yeah. did you have any specific autoimmune diagnosis from a doctor or something like that, or was it more like a hypothesis? So this has probably something to do with autoimmunity. Um, I kind of just came to that really on my own. I, I okay. do have one condition that I knew I'd been told at, at a young age that was uh, autoimmune, and that's uh, Raynaud's um, d- disease, which is a circulation problem, mm. and. Um, that again, like all the other conditions, seemed to sort of come and go and then get worse as I as I got older. Um, that was the one that I was aware of that was autoimmune. The others, mm-hmm. um, I guess, I was always told that they were just allergies and right. that's just my lot. Um, and really, I, I didn't really have that much hope in being able to resolve the asthma and the hay fever. Um, particularly, it was more about the my weight problems that um, really got me into learning about autoimmunity and it was just a an interesting um uh side effect i guess from from finding this animal based diet and keto and right and and seeing that oh my gosh i haven't had hay fever for a very long time and oh i haven't had asthma either that's funny you know and, mm. and then it started to become clear to me as time went on that well hang on a minute i haven't i haven't 
really had any migraines lately and I haven't, my skin conditions have resolved. And it's sort of, it's funny how you almost, you can live with these conditions all your, your life or your, as far as you can remember, but then sometimes it takes, uh, you almost forget that you even have them. And then you, if you get a, a flare up one day or you get a, a headache and you think, Oh, that's funny. I haven't had a headache for, for years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, very interesting. Yeah, that that's super interesting. The story you told with your um, pregnancy and then how things got worse after you got your first child. It remi- it reminded me of um, you're certainly familiar with the story of Michaela Peterson, I presume, um, because she had um, yes. right because she her story was quite similar that she had all these autoimmune symptoms which were extremely severe and she started excluding a bunch of foods from her diet and then it, all things got much better than that and then suddenly she became pregnant and got her first child and everything came back. So it's it's reasonable to presume that, well, during pregnancy, a bunch of things happens, your body like changes in a thousand different ways and the hormones are completely nuts. And so obviously things are going to change. And yeah. okay, so you, you said you found animal-based diets and what exactly did you try out? Because, you know, autoimmunity and all these things are such a mystery, not only to me, but to the medical establishment in general. And they pretend that they have all the answers, but, you know, um on a on a on a more fundamental level they still admit that well we actually don't know anything because it's like you have all these beautiful medical terms like idiopathic or essential or this and that so they believe that they have a they coined a, a intelligent term for a disease but in the end it just means we have no damn idea what caused this condition which is quite funny but it's it's particularly peculiar with uh with autoimmunity because I mean, for me, it's a stupid concept to, to just suggest that the body is so stupid that it attacks its own tissue. So, and that's why mm. just like hearing these stories like yours or from Michaela Peterson, because it just fascinates, fascinates me to hear that people had issues and then they just resolved. So what exactly mm. did you do? Well, so, and I just want to say on that note as well, it's, mm-hmm, a, sure. it's an interesting topic and it's one that I am really trying to get my head around specifically at the moment. Right. I have a, a close girlfriend who's got some uh, some liver issues and she's young and, and I want to sort of, so I've been doing this, this deep dive. And, you know, I'm studying dietetics and we're getting pretty deep in, into the biochemistry at the right. moment. I mean, I'm in year two. And and every time the, the topic of autoimmunity comes up, we just don't go very far into it. And so it's from my Sorry, own okay. research that I'm really delving into it. And, and uh, any second I get, uh, on my own where I start there at the moment I, I I'm listening to things about it and I'm trying to understand the biology of it and and even then I, I still find the topic completely confuses me and um, I can see how it could possibly I can see how now now that I look at what I have done over the last mm-hmm. few years with with eating more animal foods and excluding certain things I can see how people that are eating the way that we've been told to eat, uh, you know, for so long, how this sort of, these sort of conditions arise. And I kind of look at people now on the street and I think, how do they not have autoimmune when I think about the diet that we've been prescribed to do? So, well, um, look, anyway, look, just, uh, quick, quick comment, um, yeah. because so many people have issues. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it will be, it will be an, it would be an understatement to suggest that people are going around like being healthy. I mean, they're clearly all sick. They, yeah. they think, and, and so many conditions have become normal over the past years. Like people have migraines all the time and that's like normal. You have like headache 
th three times a week. Like who doesn't have a headache five times every day? Like, that's yeah. perfectly normal. You get up and you feel miserable. Great. That's normal because everyone wakes up and feels miserable. I mean, obviously there are a bunch of factors, but I think the baseline health status has, well, it's, it would be a bold statement to say, to suggest that it had, has declined in some manner because we, we do have less like disease. Um, well, it depends on, on the exact diseases that we're talking about. But, you know, I think, I think many people are still walking around being extremely sick. And so now the question is, is there an autoimmune component or not? But mm. I, get, I get your point. It's not, it's not so serious that you, have like, um, that, that you have like rheumatoid arthritis or something, something that, that manifests itself in horrible symptomology. You don't have that most of the time. Yeah. I think interestingly, I mean, I, as I said to you, I, I've been um, quite, quite fascinated by nutrition ever since I was about 12 years old I, I started having weight issues and and so that really started my journey way back then mm -hmm. and um even somebody like me it took me till the age of what was I 30 to even start thinking I wonder if diet is actually I mean I knew diet had a component to to it but I honestly the conditions that I was so used to having like the hay fever and asthma headaches as you said you, even somebody like me who is so desperately trying to look for, for causes, even I couldn't really see that my conditions could have been fixed with diet particularly. I just thought they were my lot. And so as you said, I mean, you, you people do get up every day thinking that, well, this is just normal. To go to a restaurant and eat and come home and, and have an upset stomach every time you go out, that's normal. That's what everybody gets. You know, like th that has become the normal. And I'll just mention as well when it comes to to healthcare, i mean what's sad about it is that nobody fits within the healthy category anymore so they moved the goalposts i mean i think it was iron recently that they moved they could see that nobody was fitting within the the iron uh -huh. <laughs> uh, recommended iron requirements so they moved the goalposts so that people wow. do and it's like that's the way of doing it these days and it's it's such a shame because then that's ridiculous people like us that that go and get their their you know, their blood tests done, they might see that they are out of the healthy, normal range and their doctor goes into a spin out. Oh, you're low thyroid. But I do wonder now how many people are actually at perfect optimum health if they feel fantastic, but yet they're not within the goal. <laughs> and right. um, do you see what I mean? I mean, they just move the goalposts. It's terrible. <laughs> well, it's terrible. And it's also, I mean, it's a, it's a, difficult, it's a dif dif difficult problem to distinguish between what's healthy and what's normal because these two things are not um, synonyms so um, and you know you could you could make you could describe the term normal as what what uh, categorizes the majority of the people so that's a reasonable proposition and then certainly you could shift the the range and then so suddenly most people seem to be normal at this or that iron level or pick whatever um, parameter you you like and then now the next question is what is healthy and optimal and should we have different range, ranges for that i would argue that it's it's uh -oh. it's, it's stupid to to go along uh, to follow the definition of normal being what characterized the majority of the people because if the majority of the, of the people are not optimal and healthy then what point is there to take that and apply that to our patients who would like to become healthy that's that's a stupid idea mm. You know, but it's being done. Mm. And on the other hand, you also have the lowering of um, 
of no what you say kind of the also the shifting of the ranges but not because because most of the people fit into that in that category but because there is a pharmaceutical interest behind it to um to manipulate certain blood levels let's say and so mm. we just lower the what what's considered normal then suddenly you have a bunch more people to uh, to treat and well mm. you could back up back it up with evidence certainly there's like there's have blood pressure as an example too high is bad and if we lower it it's like better let's say and you have like studies to back it up etc but um sometimes it's being lowered and lowered and lowered until you could ask yourself the question like why do they continue lowering all the time and shifting the the ranges all the time and i don't know yeah. what what exactly to do with that issue it's it's not trivial mm. It's terrible. I, I don't know kind of what the answer is there, but uh, whatever we're doing at the moment is not working. <laughs> it's definitely not. Um, and I mean, let, let's talk about autoimmunity because it's a fascinating topic. And apparently you, um, you've also done a deep dive. Well, I, I haven't really done such a deep dive into autoimmunity, but I, but I hope to do it at one point in time because um, I have family members, a family member suffering from, from Hashimoto's and that's something which I would to find out what exactly is responsible for that because um, that family member didn't have Hashimoto's up until she was like 30, let's say, and then suddenly it was mm -hmm. there. So it's like, if it's purely mm -hmm. genetic, let's talk about that because I would like to hear from you if you have any ideas or hypothesis as to how this emerges. Um, yeah. Because let's say, let's propose that there is a genetic component at least, then I don't exactly know what that means. Because does it mean that it manifests itself only in certain circumstances? And then how exactly does it work on a physiological or pathophysiological level? I have no idea. It doesn't make mm. any sense to me. Well, from what I can see, have mm -hmm. you ever heard of um, the Swiss cheese model? Sorry, what, what's called again? It it's called the Swiss cheese model, and no. I've heard it be used before a, a couple of times. And basically, you can imagine a, a slice of Swiss cheese, it's got the holes in it. And so I think the way that they've kind of concluded that, that, that it happens is that, yes, there is definitely a genetic component. We all have epigenetics and things, genes, I mean, cells and genes and proteins are constantly being created and broken down, and, and, and there are certain things that can turn genes on and turn gene some of them are just set and some of them can be turned on and turned off so you have the genetic component and if you imagine a slice of cheese it's got a hole in it if you have a, a, the genetic component then you can get through that hole the next one i guess is parents mm -hmm. what uh you know what do your parents provide uh the genes that are given straight to you i mean i'm not explaining this very well but then they there's another slice of cheese with another hole in it and then you have another component which is environment what are you exposed to what things in your life uh, could possibly switch on things so basically if all the um, Swiss cheese mm -hmm. uh, line up and all the holes line up you end up with a condition that is either autoimmune or the way that I see it though is that there seems to be um, a massive um, influence in 
if if you are consuming something that is breaking down the mucosal lining of your cells, basically what happens is there are certain pathways that can that can occur when you eat certain things, certain mm-hmm. proteins, for example, gluten. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, gluten is a lectin, and so what is interesting is when you can when you consume lectins, uh, they are actually able to bind onto um, carbohydrate. They bu- carbohydrate binding mo- molecules. Right. We have little carbohydrates kind of sticking off every single cell mm-hmm. in our body. So they have the potential to bind onto any cell within our body. In fact, they've been shown to um, be present on like endometrial cells, on thyroid cells. Like they are, they can okay. be throughout the body. And so the problem is if we consume something that does our uh, our gut lining. So if you imagine the little cells in your gut lining should be like this, that nothing should be able to get through that is bigger than, I don't know exactly what the, um, what the size is, but you imagine you want some things to go through these cells and, um, be absorbed and you want other things to stay, uh, in the lumen of the intestines. Certain things will make those cells kind of become more permeable and those holes, they can create holes that, uh, are big enough to be able to let things that should not be able to okay. go through, like big protein molecules. That sh- so, so you will, as you as food comes through your gastrointestinal system, they will break down to a certain amount so that they can be absorbed. Right. And anything that doesn't get broken down enough should not be absorbed into those cells and through those cells into the bloodstream. If your cells are damaged via, for example, lectins, they're able to these holes are able to get big enough so that things like proteins, food proteins, can absorb through. They make their way to the bloodstream, and at that point they're exposed to our immune system. Mm-hmm. And then our immune system can kind of recognise them and right. go, well, hang on a minute, they're not supposed to be here, so mm. we'll start attacking them. Interestingly, what they can see possibly happens, and I'm still trying to get my head around this as well, but it sounds like this thing called molecular mimicry can occur. So. Uh, when we have an immune response against an antigen, something comes into our body, it's a pathogen, it's a virus, our body will create an immune response to it and it will make antibodies so that the next time we're exposed to that pathogen, uh, uh, we know exactly what to do, mm-hmm. have a response to it. But what they can see is that if things get through this gut lining that should not be there, they go into the bloodstream and our immune system attacks those. Unfortunately, sometimes these molecules can appear similar to the little special antigens that we have on our actual cells, our healthy cells that say, I'm a healthy cell, don't kill me. But they can look a lot like those. And the body gets confused. And instead of attacking something that actually is foreign, the body attacks thyroid cells or endometrial cells or whatever it is, liver cells. And I guess what I'm trying to understand is mm-hmm. what differentiates between somebody being attacked in their liver, what differentiates somebody being attacked in their thyroid. The thyroid does seem to be a very common one. I don't know why that right. would be. Possibly um, it could be something that we're eating that is getting through that gut lining and that seems to look very much like the little antigens that we have on our thyroid cells. So. Um, as you can see, I'm, it still confuses me and I'm still trying to get my head around it, but, um, I hey, absolutely, how... absolutely. That's yeah. the reason why we never, we have to talk about that because I've been thinking about it a lot because it just didn't make, um, didn't make, didn't make sense, especially, um, taking into account the fact that this is so prevalent, 
I mean, if it's just genetic, then such a high prevalence wouldn't make any evolutionary sense because you could you could say if it's if it's if it's uh, like take um what's what's the name it's um sickle cell anemia as an example that's a really good example mm -hmm. because it's more prevalent in those regions where you have a higher prevalence of malaria because for some peculiar reason the um the one form of sickle cell anemia you know provides some protection against malaria so on, so it 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 provides a evolutionary advantage to people that are exposed to malaria and so that's an explanation for why it's more preva prevalent in these regions um, but I don't see a genetic genetic evolutionary advantage of being uh, you know having your own immune system attacking parts of your body so I think it, it will be stupid and it will be ignorant I would say to to only assume that the genetic component is the is the only thing that's responsible for autoimmunity I believe that's a, an ignorant hypothesis and so if we, and you're, you're, what you just explained, I have, I've thought about that too, because um, I believe that's somewhat the hypothesis of Natasha McCampbell. That's like the Russian doctor that, oh, what's happening? You're there? Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I'm still there. I think it's, sorry. Well, no problem. <laughs> there we go. Now we're right. All right. Did you, um, are you familiar with Natasha McCampbell? With I the GAPS diet, her, yes. she's the she coined yeah. the GAPS diet, which is gut and psychology syndrome diet, because she tried to uh, propose a link between um, the um, pathophysiological um, alterations in the gut lining that you, by the way, just delineated with um, the tight junctions that loosen up and then things can go through that are not supposed to get through, and then this in some manner affects the nervous system and you end up with psychiatric disease. That's kind of her idea. Mm. And um, mm -hmm. you, could, you could also make the same argument for every other tissue, apparently, it seems to be. Because now if you have, if I understood correctly, you have your gut lining is not, it's not, the tight junctions are not the way they're supposed to be and stuff goes, goes through that should not end up in the bloodstream. Maybe it's not digested properly, etc. And now... Is it that these things are have a similar structure to the antigens that are presented by certain cells of specific body parts? So you have you have antigens on um, thyroid cells, liver cells, or other cells that just I think they're they're being um, they're being presented on the cell on these MHC receptors, MHC two, I believe it was. That's correct. Exactly, and That's so correct. they they present everything. <laughs> every single bit of antigen that's inside of the cell being like, okay, so this is our stuff. Don't attack that because that's us. Yeah. You shouldn't, you shouldn't do this. And then if, if you have a foreign antigen appearing in the bloodstream, then you have the whole immune cascade going off. And what do you think? Is it more that antigens that go through the gut lining end up in the bloodstream that they travel to specific tissues and for some reason accumulate there and that's what initiates the autoimmune response or is it more the um, molecular mimicry that basically they look very similar to antigens that are already present on specific tissues and then these are get attacked and the the the, the presence of the foreign antigens in the bloodstream is just like that just happens and it maybe ha also triggers some autoimmune reaction some 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 immune so, 
I think it's a bit of both. I mean, I when I was looking into, for example, the lectin gluten, mm-hmm. um, and it directly stimulates the proteins, as as you were saying in the in the the gap junctions, it directly stimulates a, an effect in the cell that makes those gap junctions, the proteins actually begin to unwind. And let's face it, all those little parts of a cell are all made of protein. So if you can unwind, I mean, proteins have the structure that they have because of that they've been winded up in a certain way um, so that they take on a certain shape and that allows them to do their function. If you unwind that, mm-hmm. they just basically can't work. And mm-hmm. from what I can see and I can find the... Uh, I can find the images that I um, that I tracked down on on this note, but it was showing that the the cells actually are stimulated to take on certain processes that break down those proteins, and so which makes me think that okay, well this is what allows those cells to become to come apart. The things get through and then they go into the bloodstream. If they can do that to endometrial cell, sorry, if they can do that to the um, endothelial cells of the of the gut lining. Why could they not do that to a thyroid cell? Could mm. they could they stimulate a cascade in a thyroid cell that stops that cell from doing what it's supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Could that affect the way that they it, we're able to produce and and send out hormones? Possibly. Um, could that happen in liver cells? And could it stop the body from being able to um, produce bile? Possibly. It could do. It, I think it's mm. it kind of depends completely on the person and and we know that the blood system is systemic and it can go anywhere so if those lectins are able to get into the bloodstream they can go anywhere so i do think it's a bit of both though i i I don't quite understand the process enough but i just know that lectins can bind to any Mm -hmm. cell of the body because every single cell has um has carbohydrate moieties on them so if they can bind and if the gluten lectin can create that process in a um, gut lining cell, why can't it stimulate crazy cascades in, in every other cell of the body? Um, how that then um, ends up being a lectin binding onto a cell and then the body recognising it as a pathogen, that mm-hmm. I'm trying to get my head around as well. How, how do we um, figure out whether or not it is a food source that's causing this molecular mimicry or if it's an actual pathogen. I mean, mm-hmm. I know that there is a um, a strong correlation, for example, with this liver condition that my, my girlfriend has, um, primary, primary biliary uh, cholangitis. That apparently is heavily related to having some kind of hep, um, grow, uh, hepatitis. Um, that's an actual pathogen that they're exposed to. Can they be can that be prevented? Possibly not if they're exposed to a pathogen and that causes that reaction. Maybe it can't be avoided. So that's another another thing I'm trying to get my head around at the moment as well. How much of it is diet related and mm. how much of it is actually just pathogens in our environment? Um, my opinion on it is that a lot of these conditions, possibly even if it is a pathogen in the environment that's able to get into and expose ourselves, probably wouldn't be an issue unless they can get into the bloodstream directly. So a very easy mm-hmm. way for them to get into the bloodstream would be those cells of our gut lining. If we eat something and those cells of the gut lining open up and allow it through into the bloodstream, that's a very, very good way. And let's face it, the diet that we're prescribed to have is very, very high in, for example, lectins. I don't think mm-hmm. they're the only issue, but they are uh, proteins that can cause damage. And we are, I know as a dietetic student, this is the 
diet that we're even the health professionals are giving out as being the best diet and it is hmm. con- it is completely filled with this one specific type of protein that right. is extremely hazardous to us so why would these conditions uh, not be highly due to something that we're putting in our body and eating six or seven times a day yeah because that's what we're told lectins is one like you could you could post gluten is another um, player mm-hmm. in that whole thing cascade And I mean, it, it has been associated with autoimmunity, um, as far as I can tell. But um, yeah, there was one thing. Oh yeah, perhaps maybe that's one thing to think about. Maybe the the variability and um, the different tissues that are affected in different individuals. Maybe that's where genetic uh, components come into play. Like you have. Mm-hmm. You have different glycoprotein and you have different different things on the cell. Um, and es- essentially, if you have variety, genetic variety on that level, then on some individuals, the these proteins are going to bind. For others, they won't. And so perhaps then that's one way to explain a couple of phenomena. First of all, that many autoimmune conditions clump together and basically many... Well, they do not clump, but many individuals who have one autoimmune condition are more likely to develop others. So that's one interesting phenomenon, which we have no idea how this works. Yeah. And the second one is um, the second one is that not everyone who eats lectins or gluten develops an autoimmune condition, because that's another interesting mm. question. Like, if if we know the mechanism, then why doesn't it happen for everyone? Because we have like genetic well, variability. That's that's reasonable hypothesis. And you know what? Just on that note as well, sure. um, when I talk about my my past as, as somebody who is very very interested in health and has always tried to do the right thing by my health, so I've followed all of the recommendations, which pretty much meant going uh, almost vegetarian, right. which meant a high plant based diet. And yes. what's interesting, for example, with lectins is that they are carbohydrate binding proteins, mm-hmm. and so sometimes people that are eating a very, very high carbohydrate diet, for example, possibly even terrible forms of carbohydrates, might actually end up doing slightly better because if they consume lectins with a lot of carbohydrates, they might bind to those carbohydrates and then go straight through your system and Mm. you essentially defecate them out. For people, for example, that are maybe trying to do the right thing and doing keto, but they're also eating lectins, they might end up being worse off because they're consuming not a lot of carbohydrates with some low, uh, you know, low carbohydrate fruit and vegetables, mm. which have lectins on them. And they could end up doing more damage because there's mm. nothing for them to bind to. Does that make sense? So, um, yeah. interestingly, um, I think that could be a part of it as well. Just what you happen to do in your lifestyle uh, uh, can, I, I think, The genetic component is an interesting one, and I do think some people are just um, get off a little bit easier somehow. I don't know how. I haven't I haven't got my head around that, but I do think as well sometimes, um, yeah, little tweaks in your in your lifestyle, and you you might even think you're doing the right thing, and it can actually make things worse. And if you're doing this six or seven times a day, it adds up. Yeah, man, it's it's a it's a peculiar issue, and. Um... You know, it's even difficult to mm. define and describe the problem because, like, if we, if our goal is to solve autoimmunity as a problem, then the first step is kind of to define the problem, and we're not even able to do that. 
So how on earth are we going to proceed from that if we, if we, if we aren't even able to say what it clearly is? Because, I mean, we have no clear explanation for that, at least, at least in medical school. I mean, what they say is, yeah, it's like highly genetic, mostly, heavily influenced by genetic by genetics and for some weird reason it's still increasing and it has been increasing over the past couple of decades and we don't know why but it's definitely genetic i'm like hmm, okay so it's mm. genetic but it's still increasing that's an interesting phenomenon and next is <laughs> well there are a bunch of hypotheses i mean they they for allergies at least that was the case they suggested that you have this observation that people who grow up in a rural environment, they have higher incidences of allergies. And, you know, there are a bunch of hypotheses how to explain that. And now the next, another question would also be, how exactly do we distinguish between allergies and autoimmunity? Um, because it's still a dysregulation of the immune system for reasons we, not, we don't understand. Mm. So, yeah, and I haven't, I haven't been able to figure that out either. Um, it's it's an interesting point and, and it's something that's been on my mind a lot and I, I can't get my head around it. <laughs> well, I believe I believe there's just a bunch of things to 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 read and to learn about in, in terms of autoimmunity. Um, but okay, you mentioned let's 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 maybe slightly switch topics. You mentioned you study dietetics. Right? Mm -hmm. When when did yeah. you decide to go down that path? I always uh, wanted to do it um, uh, right up until sort of um, my late 20s. So when I came out of high school, I studied nutrition, and um, but I never used it. I, I kind of went down a different path, and I met my now ex-husband, and we went to France, and, you know, and I just kind of let it go. Uh, and then had kids, and so ever since um, – Having kids, I decided I wanted to go back and, and continue to study. And I knew that I wanted to do dietetics because I could see that the uh, nutrition world had changed since I studied. And I feel these days that um, it's harder to be, I think you can become a nutritionist. Um, I don't want to say easily because it's it's not easy and, and you know, it, but I do think um, the word nutritionist has become quite um, all or everything. It can be it can be whatever you want it to be. And there's a lot of health coaches out there and there's a lot of PTs that have yes. done a month's worth of study and they're calling themselves a nutritioner. You don't yeah. have to necessarily put in a lot of work and time in, just in order to call yourself a nutrition. I mean, if you want to be a skilled and professional and, and qualified nutritionist, ideally you learn all the time and you're a very skilled person who's able to help people to his best of his or her possibilities but um exactly you, you there's not much you have to do not just to 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 call yourself like i'm a nutritionist i've i'm a nutritionist i i've trained for like two months and now i'm a nutritionist doesn't require yes, much of an effort yes yeah. and i think i think there are some nutritionists out there that are heavily um heavily knowledgeable and that have done a lot of their own research um but i think there are also a lot out there that are not and i wanted to set myself aside and i think becoming a dietitian hopefully would give me that little bit of extra accreditation but also going into it knowing i knew back then as well that i would probably have difficulty um <laughs> agreeing with 
the the narrative um, <laughs> and and it's been it's been um it has been difficult i'll be honest it, right. it's been difficult um but i did go into it knowing that that would be the case and sort of just said to myself i need those letters uh, in front of my name yeah, and yeah, yeah. uh i just have to do what i can do to get um, to the other side. Uh, but I, I really would like to change um, the face of dietetics uh, as much as I can because I think the more um, people that can become qualified in this very specific uh, realm um, can hopefully try to, to, to change it. And, and I'll be perfectly honest, I mean, I follow some, some people in Australia who have become a qualified dietitian and they practice the usual standard way. And sure. I genuinely follow them just out of fascination because I can't see how we can get from the biochemistry that we're learning to following the food pyramid. I just, I, 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 mm. can't, I can't, I don't understand it because right now I guess I'm going in with a bit of a biased mind. Maybe <laughs> I've come in with all the knowledge that I have in my own research that I, now that I'm topping it up with the biochemistry, I can't see how we can go back to the food pyramid, but I, I genuinely just, I mean, the subjects, I'll be honest, the subjects that I'm doing the best at are the ones where I just basically tell them the opposite of what I believe right. and I get really good marks. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, that's, well, I had a similar, quite similar experience in medical school. I also went to medical school with certain, uh, with, 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 with some ideas that were contradictory to the mainstream uh, belief of, um, well, let's say, um, well, particularly in, in the realm of nutrition, let's say. So that was also a funny experience because oftentimes when I see uh, a question in the exam, I'm thinking, okay, so what is it that they would like me to say? Yeah. What? Yeah, that's not probably what I would answer, but this is most likely the answer that it would like to hear from me. And so I, I, I definitely know what you're talking about. And also what you mentioned uh, the, that in order to get to a certain point, you have now to go through that, to, to undergo that process in order to become someone who will ultimately be capable of um, providing sufficient help and um, assistance to people and help them to become healthier, etc. And it's, you know, it's the same for me in medical school, because I think, yeah, there's going to be a bunch of things that I won't like or won't agree with. But I think, you know, we all have our biases. I mean, you cannot make, you, you cannot say that the mainstream, um, the mainstream medical establishment doesn't have any biases. I mean, like, <laughs> they're the ones who perhaps have the strongest biases. And the difference is not, I mean, it would be stupid to say I get rid of my biases because I think that's almost impossible. It's better, I believe, to, to encounter new information of any sort with an intrinsic spirit of, well, let's say exploration. So you would like to explore yes. and maybe not get stuck in your own bubble because that what happens yeah. to that what happens to everyone it's like you have your biases you have your and your biases are not just random i mean the beliefs that you have or that you hold and that i share and the medical system shares there are based on certain observations on certain models and there's like there's something behind it now the question is mm. Are, do, you, do you want to get stuck in that bubble forever and don't allow your belief systems to change? Because that'd be a really stupid idea because the world changes and we still have problems. And if your model doesn't work, then what about changing your model? You know? Yeah, I completely agree with you. And, and I, 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 one thing I really try to hold on to as much as I can, and it, it is difficult uh, because you can see, I mean, for example, for myself, I mean, I've completely 
changed my life and my health and it's very mm -hmm. hard to unsee how much better I feel and to not just assume that that's what everybody needs. Um, but I said to myself at the beginning, if I come out of this course and I truly have learned that veganism is the way to go, which by the way, I don't think I will, I will embrace it. And, and I would like to see myself as somebody who can be, I just want to learn. And I, and I, and I hope that people can see um, through my Instagram account, for example, that, I mean, I've changed my name recently from Viacom Carnivore to Viacom Nikki, because I don't yeah. want to be held as everybody has to do carnivore in order to get any success. I don't right. believe in that. I, I'm very specifically very interested in sports nutrition. And mm -hmm. in some cases, I think some people possibly I'm open minded to to different diets. And um, and I would like to think that at the end, um, I, I take it. A little bit from everything and um and come out with a final result this is what human beings are optimal on um but yeah i would like to as you said i would love to see that more in the medical medical community because i think people have um so long so for so long believed a certain thing that i think it becomes very difficult for them to turn their turn around then and say sorry everybody the advice i gave you for 50 years was incorrect this is what I'm following now. I, I understand that would be extremely difficult, but I think people need to um, accept that things do change and information does yeah. change and we all want to just be more educated. How can we help each other more? And if that means that you have to accept that you're wrong, I think people should do that more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Look, we had in history and we, we could take our um, the, the food pyramid as an example but let's say let's take atrocious historical events as an example because what ideology if not if not if not accepted that you might be wrong in your way of thinking then this might lead society to very dark places and we had that in history many many times where a bunch of people die for no damn reason so I think it's it's paramount and it's imperative and there's no way around accepting the fact that you have no clue whatsoever like we don't like look at the world it's way too complicated we have no idea and what science tries to do and i, I mean science is very good at that is providing a factual description of the world that we live in but no mm -hmm. more than that i mean you have a bunch of facts you have a trillion facts you have way more facts that you can conceive of at this moment and now our I think we, you dietitians and we um, medical students and doctors, our job is not to be scientists because our job is to extract from these billions of facts those that might be helpful in, well, let's say helping patient, patients become healthier. Because there are many facts that, facts just exist and of their mere, mere existence you cannot conclude anything. We have to make decisions by taking some of them and decide which of them are more useful, which of them are less useful, and how do we construct, um, how do we construct, uh, let's say, a treatment protocol or anything that would benefit a patient, or in your case, a client. And um, where was I going with that? Well, I think you got my point. The thing prob probably that I, yeah. that I wanted to say is, I know what you yeah. mean. Sorry. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I think um, I think one thing that appeals to me about, uh, about dietetics um, is that I think the trouble a lot of doctors have, um, and I don't think all of them do it right, I think a lot of them assume things within their, their, their patients, but I'll, I'll give an example of, you know, a, a sick something 
man comes into their office and they are quite overweight and they have five minutes with them or ten minutes at mm. most. And what can they do? They can't I mean, imagine turning around to a sixty something boomer and saying, uh, I want you to eat only meat or I want you to eat mainly just meat and uh don't eat any seed oils and I want you to swap back to butter and <laughs> that person's gonna walk out of there and go, This guy's a nuts. Yeah. I think one thing that um, I feel sorry for doctors a lot of the time, and I will say, as I said, I think they not all of them do it right. I think some of them just assume that that's their their patients aren't going to follow anything that they say, so they just give them drugs anyway. Mm. I think it's a shame because some patients truly do come in wanting wanting to know what can I do to improve my health because I'm not happy right now. But I think one advantage of a dietitian is that um, is that they have a bit more time with the patient and they can really spend the time yeah. either educating or figuring out what is the issue um and and i am i'm happy to see that there are some um uh, I'm, I'm aware of some clinics in sydney um one is called sydney low carb um sydney low carb specialists oh, wow. and they spend something like an hour with their with their patients especially for this first session and i think that's incredible because that's what we need that's we need incredible. to be able to educate people and we need more time to educate people oh, um yeah that's so that's so true i mean it it could be it could not be more true i believe and what i've come to appreciate more um over the course of medical school is you know just what i was talking about facts and science i mean just because you know a lot doesn't mean like anything it doesn't mean at all that you will become a skilled professional that is going to help again extract the useful information provided to the patient and make and and help the patient to discover optimal ways for the patient. I mean, it's going to be maybe different for from individual to individual. Most certainly it's going to be different. And discover for them what is optimal in order to achieve optimal health. And, um, well, how do, how do we talk to patients and how much time we take in order to um, convey that information? That's such a crucial thing, which I came to appreciate more and more. And, I mean, it's being told in medical school to some part, um, but there is still so much more because after all, as you mentioned, there is, even, even we are being told that, that most patients are very unlikely to stick to recommendations uh, when it comes to lifestyle intervention. So let's, well, let's, mm. let's keep that aside because that's not likely to happen. Let's talk about drugs because that's, well, the better choice and it's way easier for patients. I mean, that's true, that's true. That mm. doesn't mean that we should not, not have the conversation with patients. Yes. Right, so Agreed. it's it's such a difficult yeah. problem, and I would I would uh, like. Do you want to have clients in the future? What's what's your what's your um, goal when after, um, gra well, do you, how, do, um, after finishing your dietetic studies? What would I like to do? Mm -hmm. um, to be perfectly honest, I am still trying to figure that out. Um, I know for a fact that I don't want to follow the usual pathway of a dietitian and work in a hospital with um, uh, with diabetics and tell them to eat six times a day and 65% of that should come from brains. Um, that's certainly where I don't want to be. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> um, what I would like to do, uh, I mean, yeah, I, I, I would like to help people specifically with autoimmune. I'd like to educate myself more on that. Um, I'd like to work a little bit with athletes too. Uh, mm -hmm. um, nutrition for athletes, especially 
obviously, using um, low-carb approach really, really fascinates me. Um, and I have seen some really good research on that that's starting to come out. So if I can be part of some research that, that can re-educate um, the, the uh, especially when it comes to elite athletes, it's that, that would fascinate me also. Um, but the autoimmune um, issue really, really does fascinate me. So if I can help people around the world and, um, you know, travel yeah. a little bit with it as well, that would be incredible. Man, yeah, like there's so many things that fast that, that are so fascinating you could pursue them for the rest of your life. But Absolutely. I think I think the goal is to find a way to combine them all into one um into your profession. I mean, you don't have to follow a specific path of someone. You know, most do that. That's like most doctors become practitioners, have a practice and see patients. Doesn't mean they have to do the exact same thing. I mean, I, I would really like to see patients in the future, but how I'm going to put that into practice, it's a whole separate question. And like, look, I have a, I have a good friend in medical school. She is very fascinated with languages. She like studies medicine. And apart from that, she learns like five languages or so, like French, Spanish, Russian, and whatnot. And she's actually from US. So German is also a um, uh, foreign language to her. So she is pretty good at that. And she loves learning new languages. And I, I was talking to her about that. It's like, yeah, she, 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 she wouldn't like to study anything in the realm of languages. But how about combining international whatever, something that has to do with maybe traveling because she also likes traveling a lot. How about that, combining that with medicine because that's apparently what you study, so you seem to be interested in medicine too. And you could combine all that in your profession and that might be your end goal. So only because mm. you are interested in 10 different things, in your case now, more specifically, um, perhaps you will find a way to combine them all in one end goal. But you know, it might take I mean, you some, some additional And that would be time. incredible. I think the this sort of um, situation is fantastic. I think having podcasts and it, it allows the information to get out to uh, you know more people, and it allows you to sort of um, find ways of of helping people. It means I mean it will be interesting to see over the next few years actually how this sort of space evolves and. Uh, uh, And I can see that the, the idea of when I started sitting behind a desk and having people coming into a clinic, um, which I, I work in, possibly isn't going to happen anymore because most people do things online these days. So it will be interesting to see how that chops and changes. Mm. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to definitely get the message across about flipping things upside down and, um, and re-educating people about how wrong the, the nutrition system is. So if, as long as I'm doing that, I'll be... I'll be stoked. <laughs> so you have specifically mentioned your interest in um, sports nutrition or how these two can, how, how performance, exercise performance can be optimized by means of changing your um, food, in, food intake and the, the your nutritional quality, etc. What exactly have you encountered in your research? Because that seemed to be also a controversial topic since so many claim mm -hmm. that Yeah, we maybe have been wrong um, when saying, when suggesting that high carb diets are the end all, be all for for, for performance. But well, there doesn't seem to be that much difference between low carb and high carb if it comes to like aerobic activity or anaerobic activity. Even even here, we see that maybe there's not that much difference. But what exactly is your take on that, having gone through part of the research? So. 
interestingly, um, I mean, I was only just looking at this recently and I, I did a post on it. Um, when they first started looking into, well, when they first started putting the idea together about the fact that uh, we need a high amount of carbohydrates as an elite athlete, it actually came from the idea that, okay, well, we have a thing called glycogen. That's the how we store carbohydrates. You know, we store it as glycogen. Uh, glycogen glycogen is made of carbohydrates so Mm. it was believed that okay well if we they could see that the people that had the most glycogen storage had the best capacity when it came to training so it made sense to them that well okay well if glycogen is made of carbohydrates we should just keep eating carbohydrates so that we can stock up that glycogen and then we'll have better athletic performance but that was as far as it went. It was kind of like, well, this is so obvious, so we don't even really need to look that much into it. Sure. And then, of course, all the studies that were sort of done just showed the same because they never really looked into what happens if we take the carbohydrates out. But interestingly, there have been a couple of studies that have come out and that have been very well executed. Um, I'm, I'm just going to make a point here as well that mm. I think we have this bias that um, – low carb for athletes doesn't work because most of the studies are not long enough and people are not fat adapted and their electrolytes are not well uh, uh, organized. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Which is a big, big, big part of, of athletic performance is getting your electrolytes right. Mm. And so of the studies that have actually been done correctly and these athletes have been actually properly keto adapted, they can see that number one, with the same kind of training um i think i'm not going to quote the name of it because i can't remember it but where they actually did muscle biopsies uh before a three-hour relatively high intensity run um and they had two groups one was high carb one was low carb they did muscle biopsy before and directly after and then after a couple of hours i believe and so the high carb group obviously fueled prior um high carb uh and after completing the three hours, the high carb had a high carb source, low carb had no carb. And then a couple of hours later, they checked their glycogen again. And at all three points, they found no difference between oh, wow. the two groups, which is fascinating because it was muscle glycogen, you, right? Muscle yeah, glycogen, right. exactly. Okay. So they actually did muscle biopsy and then, and that's the best you can get. That's the gold standard. Wow. And they found no difference between the two groups in all three biopsies. Um, which is truly fascinating because it just goes to show that the body's capacity to make its own glucose and, of course, therefore glycogen, um, it, it comes down to we make it as we need it. And I think that's why um, low-carb athletes can do incredibly well because they don't mm. hit that wall that you usually would when you run out of your glycogen stores. Mm. And, I mean, the, the, the theory behind when I do exercise fizz uh, at uni the, the theory is that if we just keep making sure that we are stocking up that glucose and never tapping into the glycogen more than we need to, we will always have enough glycogen to have enough power and force. Uh, but I can tell you for myself as well, I mean, um, we, we've been doing some um, peak power tests um, over the last semester and, you know, one, one RM, we've been doing, uh, you know, Wingate tests um, and... I can tell you, I, I was able to completely keep up with all the 20-year-olds in my class that are, I know <laughs> for a fact, are doing high carb. And when I brought up the topic with my teacher, he basically said, uh, I didn't say I was doing it. I just said, 
what would you say if somebody that was doing low carb tried to do this and he said they wouldn't be able to oh, and wow. I sort of just had a little giggle to myself but <laughs> I think the problem as well with with athletes is that if you imagine that you're you're a, a an elite athlete and then you decide that okay I'm looking into this low carb thing that could be cool but you've been following a certain training protocol and nutrition protocol for your whole adult life and you've got to a certain level of eliteness could you really face the idea of what if I just try this other thing? Mm-hmm. It could possibly affect my next game or my next um, performance, or should I just continue doing what I'm doing, knowing that that works? Most people would probably just continue doing what they're doing because they would not mm. want to sabotage the possibility that it might not work, even though that they might have read that it can be better. Um, but I do take my hat off to some of the athletes um, that I have seen that have taken it on and have seen fantastic results bearing in mind that i'm guessing they are getting their electrolytes correct and Mm -hmm. they are fully fat adapted right um one question came to mind yeah do you think do you think there are specific differences between in terms of sports performance between being well average carbohydrate or high carbohydrate and low carb or ketogenic because Personally, well, I've perhaps never been really ketogenic, but I've certainly been more, more low carb and less low carb. And I've I, most of the time I've been training on an empty stomach and in a fasted state. And sometimes I just experimented with eating some glucose and like honey or some like fruit or something like that right before the training session, one hour before the training session. And I have certainly, I didn't um, feel any stark differences between empty stomach, not empty stomach, uh, high carb, low carb, um, which is not to say that there aren't any differences. It's just both felt roughly the same. I still prefer to train on an empty stomach just because of the fact, fact that if I eat, I tend to eat a lot and then I'm like heavy and I cannot really train be- properly because my training are usually body weight. And if you train mostly body weight and you're heavy, then you can't do anything. You, you just feel yes. weak and heavy. Um, so maybe that's like the only reason. But in terms of performance, I haven't f- personally felt much difference between more carbohydrate or less carbohydrate. Maybe it's because I'm young and my body just does whatever my body feels right at the moment. So what's your thoughts on that? Um, okay, so personally for me, um, I so I did. I, I was doing very very strict carnivore for a good probably a year and a half, mm-hmm. I would say almost two years. And then I did the honey experiment that everybody's uh-huh. been doing. <laughs> My sort of training um, is is more uh, at that time, especially was is more heavy towards the powerlifting kind of, um, mm-hmm. kind of training. Uh, I personally found that when I started to, I didn't see any change between when I came from the high carb, the standard high carb um, with my powerlifting to going low carb. I felt like I've had the same amount of energy but then mm-hmm. adding the carbohydrates back in via honey I actually found that my performance started to drop a little bit um oh, really? I think mainly because yeah and that was an interesting one and I, I tried to look into why that would be and I I guess it would probably be that my body became more used to then tapping straight into the glucose again. right over time um uh, what I can see happens is that you know you it, the longer you do low carb, the more more fat adapted you get. And then your body starts to um, partition that little bit of glucose or glycogen that you do produce uh, for the organs that really do need it. Mm. And muscles and and parts of the body that can be hybrid, like the muscles, they 
then kind of go, all right, you guys have that. I'll I'll work off that. And mm. what I could see possibly was happening with me. I'm not saying this would happen with everybody, but maybe it could have been that um, my body was going back into okay. Well, let's let's face it. This is an easier thing to break down. We'll go back to the the glucose because it's in our system now, um, and we'll stop being as fat adapted. Maybe um, I certainly when I dropped the honey back out, um, I felt better. With my training. Could that be because I'm doing heavier lifting as opposed to a lots of endurance? I would assume actually it would be the other way around. Right. I would assume that endurance would be better being more fat adapted. Mm-hmm. Or, well, yeah, it, it, I guess it depends on what sort of t- type of training you're doing. But for me personally, I found it harder with a bit of glucose in there. Okay. Um, yeah. So look, I, I don't know. I, that That's a big question for me. I think um, I do want, I'm not saying that I think um, people don't need carbohydrates. I think it depends on who you are, but I do wonder if some of the benefits that you're getting well, depends, from it depends on what you mean by depends on what you mean by needing carbohydrates. I mean, we certainly need them. The other question is mm. if you need to eat them. I mean, we do need them, and that's that's what exactly. changed my way yes. of thinking about carbohydrates because I was for some time I wasn't like strict anything, never, not not vegetarian, not carnivore, but I was in all these spaces. That was like That was really funny because I was continuing doing my own thing. I was shifting my diet maybe when I was, when I started the whole journey, I was heavily into vegetables and I was shifting my diet to like 80% vegetables <laughs> and was way too much. And that was <laughs> horrible. And then I was more into low carb. I shifted my diet away from carbohydrates. Then I was more into, uh, into animal based and I started incorporating more, more animal foods, but I wasn't really strict anything. That being said, um, um, where was I going? Man, I, I, always go off oh, with the, do we need to actually consume yeah exactly them? exactly yeah, yeah. Do, yeah and i was i yeah. was when i was in the keto low carb space and i would still say that i consume below average carbohydrates it's certainly not like 60% or something ridiculous like that but um i was convinced that they're the enemy and like no one should eat them etc but then i came around physiology and i'd be like okay everyone is talking about And I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I encountered a, a piece of cognitive dissonance in the keto, low-carb people because they always were... That's like the mainstream argument from the keto space. It's like, there is no essential carbohydrate. That's me. It's like, there's no mm-hmm. essential carbohydrate. I'm thinking, yeah, but you also say saturated fat is good. However, there's no essential saturated fat. I'm not saying saturated fat is bad, but these two things don't go along. So if you think there is no essential carbohydrate, you have to make the same argument for saturated fat and everyone would stop eating saturated fat. You don't say that. So why, why don't you say that? And I thought, okay, what about shifting the paradigm about essential and non-essential? Because if we say essential, we presume it's good and important. If we say non-essential, we presume that's bad. We shouldn't eat, the, eat it because, but it's like, for me, it's the other way around. Non-essential means so crucial that you can survive without it because your body synthesizes it on its own. So it's so damn important that you cannot survive. You, could, you wouldn't be able to survive without that molecule for one day. That's how important it is. And I thought, okay, well, if I, if I look at that from that perspective, I see the value in glucose and I think it's stupid to demonize it as mere poison. Well, that's my thoughts on the necessity of glucose. So I think it's crucial to have some because we clearly wouldn't survive survive without any the other question is do we need to consume any that's a different question 
And, you know, um, and I haven't really come to the answer yet when you're talking about athletes. I think for the average person that um, isn't active, I don't think you need to really consume any. Having said that, personally for me, mm. I guess because I've become so uh, insulin sensitive now and my insulin is just so low all the time, the one problem I do have these days is that I find it difficult to hold on to my electrolytes at all. Um, so I think possibly for somebody yeah. like me, um, because I'm young and very, very, very active, uh, a little bump here and there helps me retain the electrolytes a little bit more. And you're absolutely correct. I agree with you completely because people do demonize um, any form of, of, you know, glucose and they mm. freak out about the whole gluconeogenesis and, oh, my God, if I eat too much protein, I'm going to stimulate gluconeogenesis. <laughs> and I think what people oh, forget man. is that, at any point in the day, no matter how fat adapted you are, no matter how non-fat adapted you are, you are tapping in and out and in and out the different fuel sources. Once they get into that Krebs cycle, they're exactly the same. Mm. They all are exactly the same. You know, once you get in there, it doesn't matter where it's coming from. Either it's coming from amino acids or it's coming from glucose or it's coming from, you know, fatty acids. They're all doing the same thing. And so even somebody who is not fat adapted at all, will start to create ketones at some point after a few hours. Um, it will take longer in some people, depending on how metabolically healthy they are. So I do think you're completely right. It's not about demonizing glucose because de glucose is, let's face it, the body loves to use glucose. It's sure. the quickest because you don't have to go into the Krebs cycle. You don't have to go into the mitochondria. You can just make, you can go through glycolysis and you can create pyruvate and you can create lactic acid. So, we need it absolutely and um yeah you're right the question is though do we need to consume it and i think for athletes is it about is it my question would be is it more about do we consume the carbohydrates in order to do better with sports performance because of electrolyte imbalances could it be that for example somebody like me finds it harder to retain electrolytes without any bumps in their insulin so could it be that i would do better in sport performance somebody like me would do better with sports performance because if i eat that little bit of glucose i retain my sodium potassium a bit bit better mm. therefore my performance um, increases could it be that possibly in some people that could be part of the issue mm. uh, if you're not eating anything at all maybe you're just not retaining any electrolytes and i think electrolytes are a massive thing for sports performance oh yeah could it be that they're actually i, I mean i I guess what I'm coming to, um, the more I learn about it at this point, I'm seeing that there could be some benefit in uh, train low. Uh, how do they say it? If you if you train on a low-carb diet and mm. then when you're about to do your game um, or your performance, then you add a little bit of um, carbohydrates in there. And like I said about the, the muscle sparing the glucose, you know, if you do that, you become so fat adapted that parts of the body like the muscles do decide to use fat over glucose most of the time they'll spare it for other parts of the body but then you give it a little bump of glucose it's like bam i've suddenly got all this mm. energy that <laughs> you know mm. i don't even know what to do with it so i do think there could be um that could be beneficial for some for some people as well so it's maybe like it's maybe like training in a fasted state training in a fasted state getting better and adapted at training in a fasted state for an extended period of time and then when a competition get, comes along and you need more hmm, rapidly 
accessible energy, then you just you just get that glucose and you better be like, yeah, thanks a lot. You have you have been taxing me in this stressful fasting state for such a long time and I'll finally can. And then maybe you'll be able to perform better. So use. Mm. OK, so that's an interesting question. Do you. Th OK, so would you say it's more using the low carb ketogenic approach as a tool to um, as a tool to well, as you as you described, to prepare your body to prepare them in the in the training period and then you introduce glucose and carbohydrates in the in the setting of a competition so is it more using it as a tool or do you really believe there are some independent benefits of the low carb approach for performance per se i think they can be in some people depending on their sport but I think most of the benefits would be once you are fully fat adapted and then you add it in as a supplementary thing when you're about to do your performance um, and I think that would depend as well on just the person in general I think some people for example if they have maybe they have an autoimmune condition they add carbohydrates from something that is high in for example a lectin that might end up reducing their sports performance because it aggravates their autoimmune condition. So I think it depends on completely who you are. Um, I think if you feel like your sports performance is slightly better using carbohydrates, I think go do it. Um, mm -hmm. It's just worthwhile um, acknowledging whether or not is this mentally, is it a mental thing that it makes me feel like I'm performing better or is it genuinely that I am performing better? Uh, and or that's the electrolytes. Only... The electrolytes are probably a huge oh, one. the electrolytes. That would be yep, a third yep, one, yep. like placebo or nocebo effect and the actual benefit of glycogen, like maybe that's a thing, maybe not. And then the benefit of retaining. We had we had kidney in medical school recently. That was fascinating because, you know, suddenly it make it made more sense to me. I was everyone is talking about and Paul Saladino is talking about electrolytes and insulin. and like, how does this shit works? And then it mm. made a bit more sense. Are you aware of the exact mechanisms? Because I think in medical school they told us something about the sodium-potassium channel in the in the tubules and how they are being, I don't know, more active by insulin signaling. So if you have high insulin, it activates the sodium-potassium channel yes. and you have more potassium being retained and more, uh, sorry, more sodium being retained and more potassium being excreted. And I believe that's one explanation for why Paul developed heart palpitations because he had so little insulin signaling that he is he lost a bunch of sodium, retained way too much potassium, and too high. Maybe he had some latent um, high hyperpotassemia or whatever you would call it, and then he had some heart palpitation because of that. But is that the mechanism, or there's anything else? Um, the, as far as I can see, that would be the main mechanism. The main one. Okay. You need you need insulin to stimulate those mm -hmm. uh, those sodium channels. And in fact, I mean, as far as I can see, hypertension is a it's an insulin issue. Right. You know, if you're not if you're not stimulating those insulin transporters, insulin requiring transporters, you won't retain sodium. And I know for myself, for example. If I do a an OMAD, if I only eat once a day, if I do that two days in a row, my <laughs> insulin must go down so low, and that's when I really notice dehydration. Um, so yeah, absolutely, there are four transporters in the kidney, mm. and they require they require insulin signaling, and oh, that's why I think okay. sometimes um, a big 
having enough of a bolus isn't that sometimes for people um having just protein can be enough but you can't go around saying you should only eat fat and not eat enough you shouldn't eat much protein because you don't want to stimulate insulin there are certain circumstances like you said where you need insulin to be stimulated Mm. because otherwise you'll become dehydrated and i agree with you completely about saladino i think that could have been part of the issue yeah. yeah, yeah, I was just thinking about the mechanisms because, and that's also what I wanted to ask you about because I haven't figured it out for myself. I'm so damn interested mm-hmm. in biochemistry and physiology, it just drives me crazy because if, if there's one problem I can't understand, I dig into the damn biochemistry until I get to the core of the issue and then first it doesn't make any sense because maybe you're aware of that curve. If you know very little, you think you know everything and then as you start learning oh, yeah. more, it goes down, you'll be like, oh shit, I don't know, I know zero, like there's... Mm-hmm. nothing and then maybe Absolutely. at the end it it's rises a little bit it'd be like a okay now i have a a rough understanding of this whole issue but it's 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 far from complete it's anything but complete and i haven't figured out for myself why it is that i am so fascinated um about learning more about biochemical pathways and mechanisms because it's like i could just i could just I could just learn the the end result and study the the not the exact biochemical mechanisms, just the rough the vague pathophysiology, how it roughly happens, and then what I am to do about it. I mean that would be sufficient, or or maybe not, and maybe that's the reason why. But why why how did your interest for biochemistry and physiology come about? What would you say? Um, it's it's I think for me it's mainly um, it stemmed from wanting to fix issues myself and I could see that if I I mean I went to doctors many many times over the years for my asthma and um, or my hay fever or whatever condition it was my gut problems whatever my skin problems like you name them mm. and they just basically said look you can either take this drug uh, and hope that it might fix it or um, you can basically just continue going on as it is Mm. um and so i kind of thought you know what if i don't figure this stuff out nobody's going to help me and nobody i mean people care people around you care of course they want to see you see you healed but nobody's going to do it for you and i think unless you go off and do the research yourself and dig and dig and dig and dig nobody else will do it for you um and and you need to experiment and, and and play around and i'm exactly with you i think any any moment that i get on my own that I just I if I start looking into a topic mm. I can't stop until I've found the answer to it um and that's called passion and, and not everybody yeah. loves biochemistry that much but my god if you're interested in it go for it because it is truly fascinating right yeah <laughs> fascinating. well it's I don't know why like it's it's just molecules doing stuff and signaling pathways and whatnot I mean I don't really know what it is about that that fascinates me. I've been I've been talking with with a friend about that recently, and I couldn't provide her with an answer. It's like, yeah, I like it a lot, but I don't know why. <laughs> it's cool. It's interesting. Me... I enjoy the seminars and the lectures where they discuss a bunch of physiology and biochemistry. And I don't know if I'm good at that because we also had a discussion with her about what comes first: is it skill or interest? Because after some one of these two comes first then it's a self-perpetuating positive feedback loop. You're, you get better and that's why you like it and then you do it more and you get better and you like it more, etc. But what comes first? Like, who knows? Maybe I was good at biochemistry. That's why I liked it. But I'm not sure about that. So whatever. I think it's the passion first. I think if you're passionate yeah. enough about something, that's you can tendency. make yourself good at... Yeah. That's my tendency. Yeah. 
but sometimes you randomly discover something. I mean, how do you discover your passion? How do, do you discover that? Well, you randomly do yeah. something, and then the question is, you try something out, and do you like it first, and then you start pursuing it? Or do you find out you're good at that, and that's why you start pursuing it? You know? And I, I think part of it, and I think a lot of people possibly that have gone through this health journey or and or fixed, uh, resolved an issue, um, then they start thinking, now, hang on a minute, why did that happen? And that's where I'm at now. I sort of, I mean, I've always been interested in biochemistry and nutrition, but, mm. but for me, it's like, it's just pushed me so much further into it because now I can see that, hang on a minute, you can heal these issues, but why can you heal them? Why, what, what has caused the healing? And, and I haven't come to the answer totally myself yet, but I mean, you can't say that, uh, I mean, for example, last year for the first time in my entire life, as, as, as far as I can remember, I was able to hold um, a wattle in my hand, which is an Australian plant that is just renowned for being, it's got like this powdery pollen that comes off it and it's just renowned oh. for being just hideous for hay fever. I was able to hold it, breathe it in right up into my nose and I didn't get any hay fever at all. And I think you, once you see those things, you can't say that is in my mind only. That I have completely healed myself of this condition and then you start to think, how did how did that actually happen and and i think the more you the more you learn about the human body as you said the more you realize that you don't understand but also the more you yeah. have respect for the human body and the more you think mm -hmm. the human body is capable of so much and and my i would say my my absolute favorite organ that i've discovered and i never would have thought it is the kidney i think <laughs> the kidney is the most incredible organ it does so much and uh we don't give enough credit to it what it's doing continuously through the day and uh it makes you realize that the human body is just exquisite <laughs> man yeah like that's that's my conclusion from medical school so far because we had these different organ systems and the different different pathways and you're probably familiar with um with the biochemical map or i don't know how it is called where all the pathways are being are depicted on one map and you have this tiny Krebs cycles in the, in, in the middle and you have the whole map around it and it's like, geez, and these things happen all simultaneously every second, every day for 100 years, roughly. And so mm -hmm. that's really something to think about. And that's why, yeah. you know, I find it very humiliating because, no, humbling, sorry, that's the wrong word, humbling, very humbling. Humbling, <laughs> humbling yeah. Humility is the word, but it, it's humbling. Um, because, <laughs> because it's like we doctors think we can interfere at one point and nothing else happens and we help and we change one thing and everything else still is the same. It's like, no, you have 10,000 things working at once and there's maybe even more pathways that we haven't even yet discovered that happens for some reason and you, you influence everything. And how are we so sure that we do the right thing? So that's mm -hmm. what I find so humbling about the human body, because in the end, our body knows best what it yes. does. And I think we as doctors and also dietitians and nutritionists, we don't have enough appreciation for the, for the crazy, ridiculous complexity of the human body. It's just mm -hmm. beyond, Absolutely. It's beyond what, we could, what we could grasp. I agree completely. And I think... There are certain circumstances where, of course, you know, if somebody is unfortunate enough to, to be born with a, a genetic condition or exposed to something that has mm -hmm. upset their, you know, caused a mutation. But I think majority of the time, 
as you said, the human body is so incredibly, <laughs> like there is so much going on at every second of the day. And I think usually when the body is left to do what it needs to do, it can figure it out if we don't micromanage everything <laughs> because we try to micromanage it as if we understand it completely and we just yeah. don't. And, um, you know, for example, calorie counting, you try to micromanage the calories that you're, that you're putting into your body, but in fact, you have absolutely no idea what's going on with yeah. how we break things down and, and people forget about what else is going on or they just hmm. don't even know that other things are going on. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. It's, I think people need to respect the human body and yeah. um, a lot of the time try and just let it do its thing and it will hopefully sort it out on its own. And what's so <laughs> fascinating... Yeah, <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. Well, sometimes the interventions help. And what's also fascinating is you have... It's the question is how far down have should you go in the um, level of analysis? So you could start very superficially, um, and um, I mean, look at the interventions. You you impose, um, let's say, nutritional intervention on a on a patient or on a client. That's not you don't tackle a specific pathway. You know, it's very it's very broad in its effects, and it affects every system at once. But for some people it helps, for some it doesn't. But if you now have, sometimes you have certain, um, certain, some types of medicine that interfere with one specific molecule, or we think it does, maybe it does more than that, but in theory it interferes with one specific molecule or with, with one chemical reaction, and the effects are from that. So that's so fascinating. You could interfere with one tiny thing, and the effects come from that, or you you do something which affects everything at once and you know what i'm saying it's like yeah that's something to think about because we 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 eat a food and all these things just happen in our body our body takes care of of these things on its own we don't have to think about it it's all it's all it all ha happens automatically and well mm -hmm. i believe i don't i don't try to make a point here it's just it's just talking about my fascination about the human body because I, I that, that that's that's also maybe a reason why I love doing these podcasts because I have no idea I truly don't and that's why I just need to have guests on to help me to understand certain things because well what do I know yeah and I respect that I think I think the people that are the smartest in the world are the ones that can accept that you know what I I, I don't know and and I want to be taught and and I think we we need to um mm. I mean uh, one thing that I'm starting to see is that the mm -hmm. um, majority of, of health conditions, especially the, the, the most serious ones, I mean, the blood-related disorders and things that are absolutely crippling to somebody and can make them unable to do everything on their own, could just, in fact, a lot of the time are just down to a single enzyme, either not being present or being overactive or being underactive or, you know, it, it usually is just one little enzyme. Mm. And um, which makes me appreciate as well that um, it, people, when they choose to, to change their lifestyle and they're able to take on, for example, a, an animal-based um, diet, how possibly upregulating just a single enzyme via what you're eating or by, by a, it being able to be produced easier because you've got enough, for example, vitamin K that you were missing, mm -hmm. how things can actually change in the body and how, how much of a cascade that can have on your entire health just because this one enzyme has now become available to your body. 
Um, and, you know, enzymes are, are, are so incredible because if they're not functioning properly, not only can you not break things down, you can't make them, you can't replace cells, you can't – enzymes are, are everything. And I think um, – what am I trying to say? I, I'm just trying to say that one tiny weeny little thing in the body that is disrupted can have gigantic, gigantic effects on the yeah. body. And I think we, we all need to respect more what, what occurs. I think, the, I think the, essence, the essence is you have this beautiful ecosystem, which is our body. <laughs> and, and it consists of billions and maybe more parts, which we partly have discovered, partly we didn't. And you could look at all these parts um, separately and say, this is one enzyme, that's the second enzyme, that's one molecule, that's one molecule, that's one cell, that's one cell. And they have on their own very important function and together they form this organism which is capable of pursuing things and walk around and live and reproduce and whatnot and think and I mean mm. have consciousness. Like, what's that? How does that come about? Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. We have neurology now. It's it's just insane. I've I've no idea what to make of that. Neuro, neuro, neurology and, and what happens consciousness and like how we sleep and what happens there and it's just like in theory it's just electric signaling but apparently it's not just that because we have like consciousness. We can think and we have we act as if we have a free will. I mean, do we have a free will? That's a good question, but we certainly act as if we do. Um so that's uh, a funny thing. And what you just mentioned with the enzymes, it's like they, they all form this organism and the organism, the function of the organism is predicated on every single part that, um, that it's made of. So every single yeah. enzyme, they together they form that. But if one thing doesn't, doesn't function, then the whole thing breaks apart. And that's also extremely mm. fascinating. And a lot of enzymes require a single nutrient yes. that we need to absorb enough of in order to allow it, as a, for example, as a, as a cofactor. I mean, mm. for example, the B vitamins, if we don't have enough of the B vitamins, we literally cannot break things down and we can't, we can't make energy properly. And, and so, um, you know, what I find though exciting is I used to always see the human body as a scary thing that, mm. um, that where magical things happened and I mm -hmm. would worry that, but what if this, happens and what if this happens and and yeah that, that's okay sometimes things do happen but what i can see though is that the human body in most healthy cases i'm not saying somebody who might have a genetic condition or something but i i just think it's exciting to think that the human body i now understand is in constant renewal constant mm. breakdown constant renewal it's constantly creating new things and getting rid of old things and if you set it up in a way that allows it to do those function those functions something that you're suffering with one day can possibly be resolved. And as I said, there are some conditions that are more difficult or that may have, have gone too far in order to fix it. For example, very, very late stages, type 2 diabetes. Okay, yeah. it gets to a point where sometimes those cells are so damaged and fibrotic, they cannot certain do what they need to do. Certain cancers. But in a lot of cases and a lot of people that we, we see in this community, I think it's exciting to think that these people can within a few years only. I mean, for, it's been about two years for me. Um, and I guarantee you people, some the, the conditions that I have had all my life, I don't mm. even, I just don't get them at all anymore. And the body can renew itself and the body can heal itself. So it's exciting, I think. That's, um, that's a great place to stop. 
that's a very positive <laughs> positive and very empowering positive. <laughs> yeah yeah because there's way too much negativity right now in, in politics and in the world so let's uh, let's let's introduce some 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 positive vibes and i think i think uh kind of making a point about the the unbelievable uh the unbelievable co complexity of the body and what it entails in terms of potential because complexity mm. and as you said you first thought of it as a scary place that could entail two things it's like oh help it's scary i'm, I'm rather not not confronting this thing or it's huge tremendous potential and so that's maybe mm. something to think about and uh, also for the future for you as a dietetic community and medical community although i actually wouldn't like to separate them because our end goal is kind of similar to ma make people healthier and it would be way better if um, we would we would learn to work together uh, as opposed to mm. in separate entities something like that absolutely agreed totally all right so yeah it's been it's been awesome talking with you and it, it helped me to clear up certain things but also it helped me to come up with new questions because <laughs> it's like i now <laughs> understand that there's even more i don't know and it's good like absolutely. i like that otherwise i wouldn't doing these i wouldn't be doing these podcasts me too. Me too. I, I feel like what's great about these sort of communications is that you've got you've done research down avenues that I haven't, and I've done research down avenues maybe you haven't, and we're coming in and and educating each other and educating the immunity uh, immunity community. <laughs> and uh, oh, we're talking too much I about autoimmunity. <laughs> A little. It's constantly on my mind. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's fantastic. Thank you so much for having me on. Awesome. Have a great day. Okay, that's that. And thanks very much for listening. I really hope that was interesting and that you were, that you were able to extract some valuable information out of this episode. And if, if that's the case, then please make sure to just share it with someone who might also be interested in listening to the episode. That will help me to spread the word, to maybe share some interesting information with more people, to maybe help more people to understand certain complexities and find answers to certain questions because the world is way too complex to observe at once and to find explanations on your own so that's perhaps the reason why i'm doing all this all right you can find all relevant links in the podcast description find me on instagram at monkey.caliplayground and and also on sapiens.playground that's actually my second instagram account where i post snippets and ex uh, excerpts uh, from from podcast episodes okay so that's it for today and see you in the next episode